2: Can you hear me?
3: Yes. What?
2: Want to thank Skylight Books for having me come out and read. Um, I'll tell you a little, um, a little Bukowski story. Um, how I met Bukowski, and um, and it's actually Carrie held that book up. Um, it's in my memoir um, about myself and my father. Thanks, Gary. Uh, When I was a young guy um, uh, my father was uh, John Fonte was an undiscovered novelist and a kind of a Crazy screenwriter, you know, and he made a living uh sucking Hollywood's left breast for about forty years. And uh and he wrote in the um, wrote in the thirties and he wrote some really good stuff, but it was all out of print. And I'll just tell you a quick story. My father's anybody here read Ask the Dust? <laughs> Again, it's in my it's in my memoir. Well, uh, Stackpole and Sons published Ask the Dust in 1939 and my father had been doing screen assignments And he, but he had really high expectations for Ask the Dust and it got great reviews uh, and it sold I think about 1800 copies and my dad was published by the American Mercury and he had a wide audience for his work but Stackpole and Sons was involved in a litigation when Ask the Dust came out in 1939. They had an unauthorized biography of a German guy that they had published without his permission. And Hitler was suing fucking Stackpole, (laughs) and all the money that would have gone to publicize Ask the Dust went to this lawsuit, and Ask the Dust was forgotten. So, flash forward about I don't know f- thirty years, and um, there's a guy who died recently, several months ago. He was a the poetry editor for the L.A. Times, and he was a good friend of Hanks. And his name is Ben Pleasance. and Ben. Um, used to drink with Hank and they would discuss writers you know they you know have a few and and they and, and so Bukowski was passionate about my dad but and they would have these conversations and after several years of this Ben finally went to the library and found a copy a paperback copy of Ask the Dust and he read it and he started to promote my father's work. It was about 1972. And, um, and he goaded Hank into talking to John Martin. And Hank was not anybody's cheerleader. He just, that wasn't his nature. But he said, you know what, yeah. And so all of a sudden, all of my dad's work was republished. And it's because of two guys. It's because of Charles Bukowski, but it's because of a poet uh... and a wonderful man and a playwright named ben pleasant so that's that's the story of ask the dust okay and uh... so there there's in, there's a lot of conversation also about the uh... the bukowski mystique i can tell you that when i spent time with bukowski um, he was always a gentleman and very clever and very easy to talk to and uh, I always enjoyed our talks. So, you, you know, there's. I never was with him when he was drunk. So, uh, that my experience of the guy is that he was with my dad and they would chat and they talk about books and Hollywood and how my father hated Hollywood and how Bukowski was starting. To, and they had an exchange of letters over time and Bukowski would write to my father about a producer or a director and they would, <laughs> there were wonderful letters because these are two writers talking about Hollywood, and they weren't kind letters, okay? So anyway, uh, and the last time I saw Hank was at my father's funeral. It was in 1983, and he uh, he died in 94, I believe. And, uh, and then I... Um, Linda, his wife, a very nice woman and wonderfully promotes his career. But uh, he, Hank doesn't need any promotion. People certainly in L.A. love his work. So um, I'm going to read a little from Factotum. And, uh, and then I'm going to read uh, a piece, one or two poems of mine. Do you know Factotum, you guys? The Yellow Cab Company in L.A. is located on the south side of 3rd Street. Rows and rows of yellow cabs sit in the sun in the yards. It is near the American Cancer Society. I had visited the American Cancer Society earlier as I had, um, earlier as I had understood it to be free. I had lumps all over my body dizzy spells and I was spitting blood and I I had gone there to be given an appointment but I had gone there and was given an appointment for three weeks later now like every American boy I had always been told catch cancer early then you go down to catch it early and they make you wait three weeks for an appointment that's the difference between what we're told in actuality after three weeks I went back and they told me they could give me certain tests free but that I could pass those tests and wouldn't really be sure that I didn't have cancer however if I was to give them $25 and pass that test I could be fairly sure I didn't have cancer but to be absolutely sure, after I had taken the twenty-five dollar test, I would have to take the seventy-five dollar test, and if I passed that too, I could relax. It would mean, it would mean my trouble with alcoholism, or nerves. I'm sorry. It would mean my trouble with alcoholism or nerves, or the clap wasn't my real problem. The talk, they talk real good and clear, these kittens at white coats at the American Cancer Society. And I said, in other words, you guys want a hundred bucks. Uh-huh, they said. And I walked out and went on a three-day toot, and all the lumps vanished along with the dizzy spells and the blood spitting. (laughs) When I went to the yellow cab company, I passed the cancer building, and I remembered that there were worse things than looking for a job you didn't want i went in and it seemed easy enough the same old forms questions etc the only new thing were fingerprints but i knew how to fin- I, but i knew how to be fingerprinted and i relaxed my hand and my fingers and pressed them in the ink and the girl complimented me on my expertise mr yellow said to come back the next day to training class and jan and i celebrated that night Janeway Smithson was a little intense gray-haired bantam rooster of a man. He loaded five or six of us in the cab and we rolled down to the bed of the LA River. Now in those days the LA River was a fake. There was no water in the LA River. Just a wide, flat, dry cement runway. The bums lived down there by the hundreds and little cement alcoves under the bridges and overpasses. Some of them had even potted plants in, the, in, in front of their places. All they needed to live like kings was canned heat, which is sterno, and what they picked up at the nearby garbage dump. They were tan and relaxed, and most of, most of them looked a hell of a lot healthier than, than the average L.A. businessman. Those guys down there had no problem with women income tax landlords burial expenses dentists, time payments car repairs or the or with climbing into a voting booth and pulling the curtain closed janeway smithson had been on his job for twenty five years and was dumb enough to be proud of it he carried a pistol in his right hip pocket and bragged that he had stopped a yellow cab in less In less time and fewer feet while taking the brake test than any other man in the history of Yellow Cab Company. Looking at Janeway Smithson, it occurred to me that it was either a lie or he had 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 half-assed good luck and that Smithson, like any other 25-year-old man, was totally insane. Okay, he said. Bowers you're first. Get this cocksucker up to 45 miles an hour and hold her there. I've got a gun in my right hand and a, and a stopwatch in my left hand. When I fire, you hit the brakes. If, I ain't got the ref- if you ain't got the reflexes to stop her quick enough, you'll be selling green bananas at noon on 7th and Broadway. No, you fucker, don't watch my trigger finger. Look straight ahead. I'm going to sing you a little song, I'm going to lull you to sleep. You'll never guess when the son of a bitch is going to go off. It went right, uh, it went off right then. Bowers hit the brakes. We lurched and skidded and spun. Clouds of dust billowed up from under the wheels as we whizzed between huge concrete pillars. Finally, the cab screeched to a stop and rocked back and forth. Somebody in the back seat had a bloody nose. Did I make it, Bowers asked. I ain't going to tell you, said Smitson, making a notation in his little, back, little black book. Okay, D'Esposito, you're next. Diaz took the wheel and went through more of the same. The drivers kept changing as we ran up and down the LA riverbed, burning brakes and rubber and shooting off the pistol. I was the last to try. Chinaski, said Smitson. I looked at the wheel and ran the cab. Um, I took the wheel and ran the cab up to fifty miles an hour. You set the record, huh, Pops? I said. I'm going to shoot your ass off the map. What? Blow out the earwax. I'm gonna I'm gonna take you, Pops. I once shook hands with Max Bear. I was once a gardener for Tex Ritter. Kiss your ass goodbye. You're riding the goddamn brakes. Take your foot off the goddamn brakes. Sing me a song, Pops. Sing me a little song. I've got 40 love letters from Mae West in my fucking duffel bag. You can't beat me. I didn't wait for the gun. I hit the brakes. I guessed right the gun and my foot hit at the same time. I beat his world record by 15 feet and nine-tenths of a second. That's what he said at first, then he changed his tune and said that I cheated on him. I said, okay, write me up for whatever you want, but just get us out of the LA Riverbed. It ain't gonna rain and we won't catch any fish. There were 40 or 50 of us in the training class. We all sat at little desks, rows of them bolted to the floor. Each desk had a flat area like an armrest to the, to the right side. It was just like the old days in biology or chemistry class. Smithson called out, Peters, yep, Galloway, uh-huh, McBride, silence, McBride, oh yeah. The roll call continued. I thought it was very nice that there were so many job openings yet it worried me too we'd probably be pitted against one another in the same way survival of the fittest there are always men looking for jobs in America there are always all the usable bodies and I wanted to be a writer almost everybody was a writer not everybody thought they could be a dentist or an automobile pe- mechanic but everybody knew they could be a writer <laughs> Of these 50 guys in the room, probably 15 of them thought they were going to be writers. Almost everybody used words and could write them down. I.e., almost everybody could be a writer, but most men, fortunately, aren't writers. Or even cab drivers, and some men, many men, unfortunately, aren't anything. The roll call was over. Smithson uh, looked around the room you're gathered here he began then stopped he looked at a black man in the first row hey Spencer yeah you took the wire out of your cap didn't you yes sir now you see you'll be sitting in your cab with your cap down over your ears like Doug MacArthur and some old woman with a shopping bag is gonna walk up and c- call your cab and you'll be sitting there with your arm dangling out the window and she'll think you're a goddamn cowboy she'll take a bus that stuff is right out of the Army, but this is Yellow Cab Company. Spencer reached down to the floor, got the wire, picked it up, and stuffed it into his cap. He needed the job. Now, most guys, they think they know how to drive, but the fact is that very few people know how to drive. They just steer. Every time I drive down the street, I marvel at the fact that theres there not there aren't many an accident every few seconds. Every day, I see two or three people simply run through red lights as if they didn't exist. I'm no preacher, but I can tell you this. The the, The lives that people lead are driving them crazy, and their insanity comes from the way they drive. I'm not here to tell you how to live. You'll have to see the rabbi or your priest or your local whore. I'm here to teach you how to drive. I'm trying to keep our insurance rates down and to fix it so you can get back to your room alive at night. God damn, said the kid next to me. Old Smithson, man, he's really something. Yeah, I said, every man's a poet. Now, said Smithson, and God damn you, McBride, wake up and listen to me. Now, when the time comes and you you lose control of your cab, you won't be able to stop it. Sorry. When is the only time a man can lose control of his cab? When I get a hard-on, said some cracker. Mendoza, if you can't drive with a hard-on, we can't use you. Some of, the best, some of the best men drive with hard-ons all day long and all night, too. The boys laughed. Come on. When is the only time a man can lose control of his cab and he won't be able to stop it? Nobody answered. I raised my hand. Yeah, Chinesky A man can lose control of his cab when he sneezes. That's correct. I felt like a star pupil again. It was like the old days at LA City College. Bad grades, but always good with the mouth. All right, when you sneeze, what do you do? As I raised my hand again, the door opened and a man entered the room. He walked down the aisle and stood before me. Are you Henry Chanasky? Yeah. He snatched my cabbie's cap from my head, almost angrily. Everybody looked at me. Smithson's face was expressionless and impartial. Follow me, the man said. I followed him down the hall into his office. Sit down, he said, so I sat down. We ran a check on you, Chinasky. Yeah. You have 18 common drunks and one drunk driving. Yeah, well, uh, I thought if I put it down, I wouldn't get hired. You lied to us. I've stopped drinking. It doesn't matter. Once you falsified an application, you're disqualified. I got up and walked out. I walked down the sidewalk past the cancer center. I walked back to our apartment. Jan was in bed. She was wearing a torn pink slip. One shoulder strap was held together by a safety pit. She was already drunk. So how'd you make out, Daddy? They don't want me. How come? They don't take homosexuals. <laughs> oh well, there's wine in the fridge. Get yourself a glass and come to bed. So I did.
3: Yeah.
2: It's vintage Bukowski, you know. Um, I'm going to read you just a couple of poems of mine. Um, This has been out of print for 10 years, and they sell it on Amazon for 150 bucks. And I have a few copies, so if anybody wants one, see me after the deal. Uh, Two poems. I met the meanest bastard starving cat while sitting with a book on a bench smoking half a pack of Lucky's at Venice Beach. He saw me and came up white filthy with one green eye and one yellow eye and his fresh slash on his scarred ear. Angry as a wounded wolf he kept his distance and his look said feed me or fuck off that bench you're on is my territory. What he didn't know is that I know desperate too and crazy and what emptiness and aloneness and rage can do to you when you've got nothing but pain in your pockets and your homers are busted out. 1978 Pontiac stalled in an alley in West LA and your mind is carving more of you off, more of you up and killing more of you off and you wake up and drink more rat piss wine and a god becomes a guy coming out of 7-Eleven handing you another, handing you 50 cents for another fucking jug and fear is your finest feeling and love is dead and all time is dead and even your eyes stink and your gut is bloated with the screaming voices of those you hate and the only real sanity there is can be found in the small, miracle of sucking back one more drink that mean mean white cat didn't know that I've been cut to but from the same cloth the only difference is 25 years in my typewriter thank you Now that I've written 25 years worth of books and plays and given up booze and cigarettes and filthy glorious pornography and my clothes don't stink from sleeping in my old Pontiac all night and my hair is thinner and I'm 20 pounds too fat and deep in my 60s with return calls to make and responsibilities and the arguments I have with cops are no longer about bail or unpaid warrants or where I hid my gun I now feel qualified to testify that time has changed nothing that this thing in me that all my life has ticked and squirmed, this unfilled hole, this need to yell out and change things and never be satisfied this voice that has survived shrinks and jails and three divorces and suicide and bankruptcy and self-improvement weekends. this rage still guides my vision and demands that I go head first against my life like a fool in search of a pure white flame
1: yeah thank
2: you, thank you. Yeah. last poem Walk with only words and books as your friend. Dream the dreams of deviant dead writer saints who coming before you drowned the pain of their purest heart in vats of gin like a flailing unloved cat. Embrace selfishness and joblessness. Smoke millions of unfiltered cigarettes and glue your ass hopelessly to the evilest drunken crack whore who trade your balls in a New York instant for the guy at the end of the bar with a pitted face and a $50 bill. Do not be courageous just remember that all men are fools and liars, soulless captives of their own blood-stained necessity. Oh yeah, and forgive nothing. Then maybe one may, one day, like me, your feet aching and your skull still raw from last night's festivity, you'll kick over a box or turn a page and find yourself face to face with the blurry eyes of God. Yeah. It is my pleasure to introduce Richard Lang.
1: If anybody needs a refill, I know I do.
0: (laughs) Remember
1: Bonson? I first discovered Bukowski I was probably 18 years old. I moved here when I was 17. I grew up in uh, the Central Valley of California, uh, Bakersfield, Stockton, Manteca, Lamont. Uh, My mom chasing uh, husbands around the valley, welders and pipe fitters. And uh, So I I always had this idea that I want to move to Los Angeles and finally uh, I got a scholarship to uh, USC and Came here, uh, I was working 30 hours a week at a supermarket while going to school at SC and I happened upon this uh, book of short stories by Charles Bukowski. And uh, it was, you know, a mind blow. Back then, you know, I was getting my Hemingway and all the official tomes that they teach you uh, in college. And Bukowski was something outside of that. That uh, you couldn't even talk to your professors about it. I mean, you'd, they'd be like, "Eh, that guy," you know. <laughs> He's, you know, same thing they did with Kerouac. You know, they were relegated to this sort of secondary level when they were the things that really—I mean—I I was excited by the official canon, but uh, these other th- these other voices were uh, very important to me, and Bukowski in particular, because I was living in those neighborhoods. I was uh, when I got old enough. Drinking in those bars, and uh, it it delineated a uh, it, it kind of made a map of L.A. that uh, laid it out for me where I could I I I it helped me figure out Los Angeles. You know, people always talk about L.A. being a very hard place to to figure out. And through reading Bukowski, I sort of learned about L.A. and found a kind of L.A. And I think I spent you know ten years following his map, and then uh, finally. Got the courage and the chops to be able to start creating uh, my own map, and you know to be to become a writer. The other thing that was is inspiring about him for me was that I was working a day job, you know, and writing on the side at night, much like like he was. And there was this per- the pers- the idea of perseverance that you just keep going and going, no matter what, even though nothing's happening, you're getting rejected all the time. Uh, that it's just this burning desire that it's it's within you, and it's not it's it's nothing that anybody says to you. It's not any kind of affirmation you're getting from anybody else. It's just what's inside you. And I would often think of him alone in a room with that typewriter, and you know, cranking out this stuff, just throwing it basically piling it in a closet. Which I understand, you know, according to the legend, that's where it was. But uh, that was also very uh, very helpful, and so. You know, maybe I've moved beyond, like, the actual content of the writing, and, you know, it, it's, 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 it doesn't have that same level, but the legend uh, will always live on. And there are certain stories, and uh, this book, as I said, was the first one I picked up, so I'm going to read the second story in this book, uh, which is called Kid Stardust on the Porter House," And it's one I've always remembered, and I can remember, it's rare that when you read a story, you remember it for the rest of your life. Like, you remember every line. And I hadn't read this since then. Before, I, And I just, when I decided I was going to read something, you know, they asked me to read something, I picked it up and uh, picked up this book and reread that story 30 years later, 35 years later. And I remembered every line of the story. It was exactly as I remembered it. So that's rare. That's a gift. If you can do that to someone as a writer, that's an amazing thing. So... Kid Stardust on the Porterhouse. My luck was down again and I was too nervous at this time from excessive wine drinking, wild eyed weak, too depressed to find my usual stop gap, rest up job as a shipping clerk or stock boy. So I went down to the meatpacking plant and walked into the office. Haven't I seen you before? The man asked. No, I lied. I'd been there two or three years before gone through all the paperwork the medical and so forth and they had led me down steps four floors down and it had gotten colder and colder and the floors had been covered with a sheen of blood green floors green walls I'd been explained my job which was to push a button and then through this hole in the wall there was a noise like the crushing of fullbacks or elephants falling in lay and here it came something dead a lot of it bloody. And he showed me, you take it and throw it on the truck and then push the button and another one comes along. Then he walked away. And when he did, I took off my smock, my tin hat, my boots, issued three sizes too small, and walked up the stairway and out of there. Now I was back, struck down again. You look a little old for the job. I want to toughen up. I need hard work. Good hard work, I lied. (laughs) Can you handle it? I'm nothing but guts. I used to be in the ring. I fought the best. Oh yes? Yeah. Um, I can see by your face you must have been in some fierce ones. (laughs) Never mind my face. I had fast hands. Still have. I had to take some dives. Had to make it look good. I follow boxing. I don't recall your name. I fought under another name. Kid Stardust. Kid Stardust? I don't recall a Kid Stardust. I fought in South America, Africa, Europe, the islands. I fought in the tank towns. That's why there's all these gaps in my employment records. I don't like to put down Boxer because people think I'm kidding or lying. I just leave the blanks and to hell with it. All right, show up for your med at 9.30 a.m. tomorrow and we'll put you to work. You say you want hard work? Well, if you have something else. No, not right now. You know, you look close to fifty years old. I wonder if I'm doing the right thing. We don't like you people to waste our time. I'm not people. I'm Kid Stardust. Okay, Kitty laughed. We'll put you to work. I didn't like the way he said it. Two days later I walked through the pass gate into the wooden shack where I showed an old man my slip with my name on it, Henry Charles Bukowski Jr. And he sent me onto the loading dock. I was to see Thurman. I walked on over. There were rows of men sitting on a wooden bench and they looked at me as if I were a homosexual or a basket case. I looked at them with what I imagined to be easy disdain and drawled in my best back alley fashion. Where's Thurman? I'm supposed to see the guy. Somebody pointed. Thurman? Yeah. I'm working for you. Yeah. Yeah. He looked at me. Where's your boots? Boots? Got none, I said. He reached under the bench and handed me a pair, an old hardened stiff pair. I put them on, same old story, three sizes too small. My toes were crushed and bending under. Then he gave me a bloody smock and a tin helmet. I stood there while he lit a cigarette, or as the English might say, while he lighted his cigarette. He threw away the match with a calm and manly flourish. Come on. They were all Negroes, and when I walked up they looked at me as if they were black Muslims. I was nearly six feet, but they were all taller than I, and if not taller, than two or three times as wide. Charlie, Thurman hollered, Charlie, I thought, Charlie, just like me, that's nice. I'm already sweating under the tin helmet, put him to work. Jesus Christ, oh Jesus Christ, whatever happened to the sweet and easy nights? Why doesn't this happen to Walter Winchell, who believes in the American way? Wasn't I one of the most brilliant students in anthropology? What happened? Charlie took me over and stood me in front of an empty truck a half block long that stood in the dock. Wait here. Then several of the black Muslims came running up with wheelbarrows painted a scabby and lumpy white like white was mixed in with hen shit, and each wheelbarrow was loaded with mounds of hams that floated in a thin and watery blood. Well, they didn't float in the blood, they sat in it like lead, like cannonballs, like death. One of the boys jumped into the truck behind me and the others began throwing the hams at me and I caught them and threw them to the guy behind me who turned and threw the ham into the back of a truck. The hams came fast, fast, and they were heavy, and they got heavier. As soon as I threw one ham and turned, another was already on the way to me through the air. I knew that they were trying to break me. I was soon sweating, sweating as if faucets had been turned loose, and my back ached, my wrists ached, my arms hurt, everything hurt, and I was down to the last impossible ounce of limp energy. I could barely see, barely summon myself to catch one more ham and throw it, one more ham and throw it. I was splashed in blood and kept getting the soft, dead, heavy thump in my hands. The ham giving a little like a woman's butt. And I'm too weak to talk and say, hey, what the hell's the matter with you guys? (laughs) The hams are coming and I'm spinning nailed like a man on a cross under a tin helmet and they keep running up barrows full of hams, 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 and at last they are all empty. And I stand there swaying and breathing the yellow electric light. It was night in hell. Well, I always like night work. Come on. They took me into another room, up in the air through a large entrance high in the far wall. One half a steer, or it might have been a whole one. Yes, they were whole steers, thinking of it, all four legs. And one of them came out of the hole on a hook, having just been murdered. And the steer stopped right over me. It hung right over me there on that hook. They've just killed it, I thought. They've just killed the damn thing. How can they tell a man from a steer? How do they know that I'm not a steer? All right, swing it. Swing it. That's right, dance with it. What? Oh, for Christ's sake, George, come here. George got under the dead steer. He grabbed it. One, he ran forward. Two, he ran backwards. Three, he ran far forward. The steer was almost parallel to the ground. Somebody hit a button and he had it. He had it for the meat markets of the world. He had it for the gossiping, cranky, well-rested, stupid housewives of the world at two o'clock in the afternoon in their house smocks, dragging red-stained cigarettes and feeling almost nothing. They put me under the next steer, one, two, three. I had it. It's dead bones against my living bones. It's dead flesh against my living flesh. And the bone and weight cut in. I thought of operas by Wagner. I thought of cold beer. I thought of sexy cunt sitting across me on a couch with her legs crossed high. And I have a drink in my hand, and I'm slowly and surely talking my way toward and into the blank mind of her body. And Charlie hollered, hang her in the truck. I walked toward the truck out of shame, out of defeat, taught me in the American schoolyards as a boy, I knew that I must not drop the steer to the ground because this would show that I was a coward and not a man, and that I didn't therefore deserve much, just sneers and laughs and beatings. You had to be a winner in America. There wasn't any way out, and you had to learn to fight for nothing. Don't question. And besides, if I drop the steer, I might have to pick it up. Besides, it will get dirty. I don't want to get it dirty, or rather, they don't want it to get dirty. I walked it into the truck. Hang it. The hook, which hung from the roof, was as dull as a man's thumb without a fingernail. You let the bottom of the steer slide back and went for the top. You poked the top part against the hook again and again, but the hook would not go through. Mother ass. It was all gristle and fat. Tough, tough. Come on, come on. I gave it my last reserve and the hook came through, it was a beautiful sight, a miracle, that hook coming through, that steer hanging there by itself completely off my shoulder, hanging for the house dresses and the butcher shop gossip. Move on. A 285 pound negro, insolent, sharp, cool, murderous, walked in, hung his meat with a snap, looked down at me. We stays in line here. Okay, ace. I walked on in front of him. Another steer was waiting for me. Each time I loaded one, I was sure that was the last one I could handle. But I kept saying, one more, just one more. Then I quit. Fuck it. They were waiting for me to quit. I could see the eyes, the smiles when they thought I wasn't looking. I didn't want to give them victory. I went for another steer. The player, one last wash, one last lunge of the big time washed up player. I went for the meat. Two hours went on, then somebody hollered, break. I had made it. A ten minute rest, some coffee, and they'd never make me quit. I walked out behind them toward a lunch wagon that had drawn up. I could see the steam rising in the night from the coffee. I could see the donuts and cigarettes and coffee cakes and sandwiches under the electric lights. Hey, you. It was Charlie. Charlie, like me. Yeah, Charlie? Before you take your break, get in that truck and move it out and over to stall 18. It was a truck we had just loaded, the one half a block long. Stall 18 was across the yard. I managed to open the door and get up inside the cab. It had soft leather seat, and the seat felt so good that I knew if I didn't fight it, I would soon be asleep. I wasn't a truck driver. I looked down, I looked like a half a dozen gear shifts, brakes, pedals, and so forth. I turned the key and managed to start the engine. I played with the pedals and gear shifts until the truck started to roll and then I drove it across the yard to stall 18, thinking all the while, by the time I get back the lunch wagon will be gone. This was tragedy to me, real tragedy. I parked the truck, cut the engine and sat there a minute, feeling the soft goodness of that leather seat. Then I opened the door and got out. I missed the step or whatever was supposed to be there and I fell to the ground on my bloody smock and Christ tin helmet like a man shot. It didn't hurt. I didn't feel it. I got up just in time to see the lunch wagon driving off through the gate and on down the street. I saw them walking back in toward the dock laughing and lighting cigarettes. I took off my boots. I took off my smock. I took off my tin helmet and walked to the shack at the yard entrance. I threw the smock, helmet, and boots across the counter. The old man looked at me. What, you quitting this good job? Tell them to mail me my check for two hours or tell them to stick it up their ass. I don't give a damn. I walked out. I walked across the street to a Mexican bar, and drank a beer, and then got on, my, on a bus to my place. The American schoolyard had beat me again. Uh, next up is uh, the uh, incredible Jerry Stahl.
3: It's really an honor to read with uh, Dan Fonte and Richard Lang. i sure Bukowski would approve, maybe.
2: <laughs>
3: um, I'm just going to read a few poems. All of them I wrote. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just going to read Bukowski's poetry tonight. And uh, I'd like to tell a little story. Um, before, when I first got to Hollywood in the 70s, Um, Late, late 70s, as I vaguely recall, there was a all-night market called the Pioneer Market. Used to be on Cahuenga and just all manner of skeeks and sketchy characters used to go there and one night I was there at about four in the morning and I saw this guy uh, just throwing box after box of Jumbo Kotex into a uh, a shopping cart. Uh, It was John Wayne. I don't know what that story really means or how it relates to Bukowski, but I have a feeling he would approve or not. Uh, First poem I'm going to read is uh, called Some of My Readers. Richard is a much bigger man than me and I I need to lower this a little bit. I liked it coming out of that expensive cafe in Germany that rainy night. Some of the ladies had learned that I was in there and as I walked out well fed and intoxicated, the ladies waved placards and screamed at me, but all I recognized was my name. I asked a German friend what they were saying. They hate you, he told me. They belong to the German female liberation movement. I stood and watched them. They were beautiful and screaming. I loved them all. I laughed, waved, blew them kisses, which for a writer who gets shitty reviews is a great way to handle that. And I think a lot of writers have learned from his example. Except for the kisses part. Then my friend, my publisher, and my girlfriend got me into the car. The engine started. The windshield wipers began thrashing. And as we drove off in the rain, I looked back. Watched them standing in that terrible weather. Waving their placards and their fists. It was nice to be recognized in the country of my birth. That was what mattered most. Back at the hotel room, opening bottles of wine with my friends. I missed them. Those angry, wet passionate ladies of the night. So that was some of my readers. And uh, boy, the energy in here is just electric. (laughs) Really, I don't know if you guys can can feel that the way I'm feeling it up here. It's just, it's actually hard to stand in one place. (laughs) The next poem I'm going to read I've never said that before because I myself am not a, I'm not obviously not a poet. Um, This is about, this is what I meant to segue with the John Wayne story, but not being that clever, I didn't. But this is called The Star, and it's about celebrity a little bit. It's also sort of a, uh, a plan for life that I think a lot of young writers really tried to embrace for themselves with alarmingly bad results but it worked for him i was drunk and they got me out of my car put the bracelets on and made me lay down on the roadway in the rain they stood in their yellow raincoats cops from three squad cars the water soaked into my clothing i looked up at the moon through the raindrops thinking here i am sixty two years old and being protected from myself again earlier that night i attended The opening of a movie, which portrayed the life of a drunken poet, me. This then was my critical review of their effort, and uh, that's the star. Anybody in here a new Bukowski? I'm just curious. They look like, yeah, nobody. It's really interesting, you know. I think uh, one of the great legacies of Bukowski, and it's sort of related to the next poem I'm going to read is that every uh, sort of young middle-class white guy really thought he was a badass you know and uh, after Bukowski there's a spate of like white badass guys writing about guns in their hands and the drinks and waking up in Cleveland and I don't know how they got there and uh, it's, it's a really interesting effect to have had on a generation and uh, I can just feel the hate coming from the audience as I say that, but I, I, I know there are a lot of tough guys in the audience and you've all read Bukowski and you've probably drunk a lot and I, I just feel that power, you know, I feel that, that darkness and the pain that a lot of you have been through and uh, I respect that. I respect that. Training for Kid Aztec. I was a young guy in Los Angeles. There were little bars around the plaza, small Mexican bars, and there was one large one, well frequented. And I started the night out there, but it was too mellow, full of decent working types, so I got out, found a winding little alley, dark, and I followed it down, switchblade in pocket, until I found this little bar at the alley's end, went in, sat on a stool, and ordered a bottle of beer. There were four Mexicans in there including the bartender and I sat looking straight ahead lifting my beer now and then I was a crazy son of bitch son of a bitch ready to go all the way better not fuck with me I finished the bottle ordered another Where the hell are the women I asked no answer I shouldn't be in here I said I'm training for a fight at the Olympic
2: <laughs>
3: a four rounder I'm fighting Kid Aztec silence I got off my stool, stood up, sneered. Anybody here want to spar a little, huh? I think we've all said that (laughs) while sitting in bars. I got off my stool, stood up, sneered. Anybody here want to spar a little, huh? No answer. I put a coin in a jukebox. The music came on, and I shadow boxed to it. When the piece was finished, I sat down and ordered another beer. I'm a killer, I told the barkeep, a born killer. I'm sorry for Kid Aztec. The barkeep took my money, rang it into the register, his back to me. I said to his back, on top of everything, I'm a writer. I write short stories, novels, poems, essays. Señor, you write poems? Asked a big Mexican at the end of the bar. Shit yes. What do you write these poems about? Love. (laughs) Oh, love, Señor. Love poems to death. (laughs) I drained my bottle, ordered another. I write too, Señor. Oh, yeah? Oh, yes. I stick my pencil into women, and I write inside of them. (laughs) The other Mexicans laughed. I waited until they were finished. You guys are fools. You laugh like fools. Maybe so, senor, but even fools have a right to laugh, no? I peeled the label off my beer, stuck it face down on the bar, finished off the bottle. Another beer, senor? Asked the barkeep. Nah, that's enough. I gotta get my rest. I walked toward the exit. Good luck with your fight with Kid Aztec, senor, somebody said. I walked off the little alley, stopped to puke in a dark corner, finished, walked out into the street looking for a poem, a better bar, something, anything. I had only bored them with my dangerousness. (laughs) All the nights were the same and the days were worse. I stood under a plaza at the, I stood under a tree at the edge of the plaza lighting a cigarette and trying to look like a killer. Nobody noticed. Maybe they never would. I had held the match too long, it burned my fingers, I cursed loudly, stepped out and began walking toward the train station. Somebody had told me that the hookers were sucking them off right on the loading ramps. What a romantic, (laughs) I think, is what I think when I read that. In in interviews, when I was young and stupid, uh, people would say, why did you want to become a writer? And I would always say... uh, because it's something you could do naked and fucked up and alone at three in the morning, which was a stupendously lame and pretentious answer that like mortifies me now. But I realize that you get the ideas for stuff like that uh, from the few guys who can pull it off, you know, like Bukowski or Keith Richards, you know. Um, Like you want to be a junkie like Keith, but nobody tells you when you're kicking dope that Keith won't be there with a warm towel to tamp off your eyebrow. Um, But Bukowski made it. So this is called Playing It Out. There are only two men I can really relate to in this world and one is on his deathbed and the other well his wife just ran away from him and I sit here typing these things drunk as everybody else in the neighborhood is asleep except for two dogs barking at the sound of these keys. It's strange I think that the best I know are in trouble While the worst are healthy, calm, and prosperous, they are also exceptionally dull and consider themselves my friends. I keep typing these drunk poems, sitting in this chair, smoking too many cigarettes and not understanding anything, and finally, not wanting to. Just drinking and cracking these keys to make the dogs bark, night into morning. And that's the life, man. I mean, I think that's what everybody wanted. They wanted to be that guy just drunken up all night and being Bukowski. Uh, sometimes it works. So I want to read something about the racetrack. Is everybody cool? Has everybody got to go, you know, watch, go watch the Dodgers or anything? Uh, I want to read some because he was such a devotee you can see my continental influence. He was such a devotee of the racetrack, and this is one of my favorite little things he wrote about the track. I have a saying. This is in a, in a longer piece called Horse Meat. Great with titles, by the way. I have a saying. You will find the lowest of the breed at the racetrack. I am there almost every day working on my various systems, waiting the long 30 minutes between races. I don't know how many of these 30 minute waits I have given away over the years, sitting there waiting for a race that is generally over in a minute and nine seconds. And at the quarter horse races, most are finished in 17 seconds, plus a tick. A racetrack never has a losing day. For each dollar bet, they give back about 84 cents. In Mexico, they give back 75 cents. At some of the European tracks, they give back 50 cents. It doesn't matter. The people continue to play. Check the faces at any track going into the last race. You will see the story. When I came out of the county charity ward, General Hospital, in 1955, after drinking 10 years without missing a night or a day, except while in jail, they told me that if I ever took another drink, I would be dead. I went back to my shack job, again, what a romantic, and I asked her, what the hell am I going to do now? We'll play the horses, she said. Horses? Yeah, they run, you bet on them. She'd found some money in the boulevard. I didn't ask how. We went out. I had three winners. One of them paid over fifty bucks. It seemed very easy. We went a second time and I won again. That night I decided that if I mixed some wine with milk that it might not hurt me. (laughs) I tried a glass. Half wine, half milk. I didn't die. The next glass I tried a little less milk and a little more wine. By the time the night was over I was drinking straight wine in the morning I got up without hemorrhaging after that I drank and played the horses 27 years later I'm still doing both time is made to be wasted <laughs> life lessons from Bukowski so uh, this is really I, I don't write, like reading too long because I drift I don't know about everybody else but I, I'm going to read part of this one This is another great racetrack poem. People are fleeing in droves. They are at the track every Saturday afternoon, two immensely fat men and a fat woman, and the fat woman's son, who is also getting obese and is the son of one of the men. They sit together, eat hot dogs, drink beer, and scream together during the race and after the race. No matter who wins, they scream. Between races they argue while consuming hot dogs and beer. I sit and watch them from a distance. They are far more interesting than the horses or the war in Nicaragua. As I watch the fattest man lifts his beer cup, large size, and gulps down a mass of suds. His mouth His mouth is strangely small and he bites at the cup and much of the beer spills out and runs down each side of his chin onto his shirt. He pulls the cup out of his mouth and screams, shit, you asshole, the fat woman screams at him. Then they both sit there, not angry at all, (laughs) as if nothing had occurred. (laughs) Just, yeah. Finally, I'm, I'm just going to read uh, the last the last poem because what I love and what to me makes him the real badass is that Bukowski wrote about where it all took him and where he ended up as an older guy in LA despite the fact that he was Bukowski. So this is uh, actually the last poem in this book. It's, it's one of my favorites because it's just so damn uplifting. It's called eating my senior citizen's dinner at the Sizzler. (laughs) Between 2 and 5 p.m. any day and any time on Sunday, Wednesday, and Wednesday it's 20 percent off for us old dogs approaching the sunset. It's strange to be too old, it's strange to be old and not feel old, but I glance in the mirror, see some silver hair, concede that I'd look misplaced at a rock concert. That was before the Rolling Stones started touring in their 60s, but I eat alone. The other oldies are in groups, a man and a woman, a woman and a woman, three old women, another man and a woman. It's 4.30 p.m. on a Tuesday and just five or six blocks north is the cemetery on a long sloping green hill, a very modern place with the markers flat on the ground. It's much more pleasant for passing traffic. A young waitress moves among us, filling our cups again with lovely, poisonous caffeine. We thank her and chew on, some with our own teeth. <laughs> we wouldn't lose much in a nuclear explosion. One good old boy talks on and on about what he's not sure. When I, I finish my meal, I leave a tip. I have the last table by the exit door. As I'm about to leave, I'm blocked by an old girl and a walker followed by another old girl whose back is bent like a bow. Their faces, their arms, their hands are like parchment as if they had already been embalmed, but they leave quietly. As I'm made ready to leave again, I'm blocked, this time by a large wheelchair. The back tilted low, it's almost like a bed, a very expensive mechanism, an awesome and glorious receptacle. The chrome glitters and the thick tires are air inflated, and the lady in the chair and the lady pushing it look alike, sisters no doubt. One's lucky, gets to ride, and they go by, again, very white. And then I rise and make it to the door into stunning sunlight." Make it to the car, get in, roar the engine into life, rip it into reverse with a quick back turn of squealing tires. I slam to a bouncing halt, rip the wheel right, feed the gas, go from first to second, spin into a gap of traffic, and quickly into third, fourth. I'm up to 50 miles per hour in a flash, moving through them. Who can turn the scream of destiny? I light a cigarette, punch punch on the radio, and a young girl sings, put it where it hurts, daddy. Make me love you.